One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Deborah Willis, author of Vanishing and Other Stories and The Dark and Other Love Stories. Willis was born and raised in Calgary, Alberta. Her short story collection, The Dark and Other Love Stories, contains 13 tales with a variety of points of view, setting, and characters. The storylines range from a drug dealer's girlfriend signing up to go on a mission to Mars for reality TV, two teenage girls testing their friendship while breaking into houses all summer, and an alcoholic with a pet crow he keeps in his apartment. We began the interview discussing a through theme of the collection and the title. I came up with the title after completing most of the book. So I sort of, I had known for a little while that I wanted to write a group of stories about love. So not exactly love stories. Like in a way, I think the title is misleading because it's not a bunch of romances. Um, But I wanted to write a a group of stories about love and that explores love in in different guises. So like love in families, um, love between friends, uh, and of course, between lovers and husbands and wives and so on. Um, but I, I really knew from the beginning that I didn't want to write anything that was cheesy or, or overly idealistic or something. So I think the title really appealed to me when I, when I hit upon it because it just felt, it felt right for what I wanted to do. I wanted to sort of express um, a sort of flawed kind of love, but... Um, realistic without being you know super painful (laughs) just just the kind of love that people do experience in their lives in the first story the dark it's about two girls who go to summer camp and they sneak out at night and they're very good friends but one of them is a little bit more of a risk taker 
And I feel like you're really capturing that quick and intense friendship that you make at camp. And in this case, it's girls. Can you talk about that? Because you actually had another story later about two girls who were also really good friends in adolescence. Why, mm-hmm. why does that interest you? Those two stories, in a way, came out of my own experience more than any of the other stories. I, ha- I mean, I went to summer camp. I was a camper and then a counselor for like 12 summers. So it was a huge part of my life when I was growing up. And I really did want to capture that feeling where you're, you're in an actual different world from your parents and you're in a different world from any of your school friends. It, it, to me, it was, like I say in this story, it's like love at first sight when you meet your, your camp best friend because you are, like it's this intense period of time where you're together and then you have to be apart for the entire year. And I remember that feeling very, very clearly. Um, and I think too, you know, when I was growing up, I was like very shy, pretty quiet. I, I was like, I think you could characterize me as like pretty forgettable. <laughs> like, you know, I recently moved back to my hometown and I went to a party when I, when I moved back that were a lot of, there were a lot of sort of former high school friends and and it was strange to be that person again, to be kind of fading into the background the way that I had as a kid. But because of that, I was sort of attracted to, to friends who, who were more outgoing. And I had girlfriends who were bigger risk takers than me and who were um, more out there. So I think that those kind of stories came out of my experience. Do you think being, as you categorize yourself, being forgettable made you into a writer in the sense that sometimes when you're forgettable or in the background, you're basically an observer? Yeah, I'm so grateful for that, actually. Now, I mean, at the time, I didn't mind it either. You know, it's it's kind of nice to be ignored when you're a kid at school. I mean, I wasn't ignored by teachers and so on, but I, but I wasn't, I was never, I watched friends of mine get bullied or teased and I never had to endure that. So I was grateful for it at the time too. But now I really see that the, all that, that time that you can spend observing or, um, I was also an only child, so I did have a lot of time in my own head. And I think that that led to like my, my love of writing and being able to make it into something of a career now. So, I guess what I'm interested in is that what broke their friendship and I think what also might have broken the friendship of the other story with um, one girl ended up going to Israel and one stayed here, but they were best friends and and broke into houses together um, Mm -hmm. is that there was one character who was willing to take more risk. And do you think that's something that breaks friendships up in adolescence? I think in those two stories, I mean, well, especially in the the dark, the the story that takes place at summer camp, you've got one girl who's want who's sort of throwing herself headlong into adolescence. She she doesn't want to be a child anymore. She wants to she, she wants to feel older than she is. And then one girl who's holding back. So I think that that could really put a wedge between girls at that age or or kids at that age. Um, with the other story, I think there was kind of a, an, a problem, an inequality in the friendship from the very beginning. So one girl is kind of obsessed with the other girl and the other girl is, um, you know, much more interested in herself and in, 
in boys and in sort of pushing boundaries and so on. So I think that that inequality is maybe what, what split them up. Though, and those sort of dynamics, I mean, I, that, didn't, don't, that didn't come out of my life, but I guess it's, it's maybe comes from something I observed in, in girls when I was growing up or just in life in general. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors into people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Deborah Willis, author of the short story collection, The Dark and Other Love Stories. In the acknowledgments, um, your acknowledgments are actually pretty specific. And you talk a lot about your influences for these stories. And so many of your stories were influenced by other either stories or books or nonfiction that you wrote that you read. And I'm wondering about that process for you. It was so clear and you were really specific about that. Do you get a lot of your inspiration from reading? I do. Yeah, I'd say I get a lot of it. And, And I really like to do research. And I, I know my acknowledgments are so long. I think that's like the Canadian in me that just wants to thank everybody and, and acknowledge everybody. And part of it, too, was that I did feel for a couple of the stories just how how enriched they were by other people's work. Like the I did a lot of research about falconry and and um, I, I just couldn't have written that story without without reading other people's work. And then um by the same token, I couldn't have written that story if I hadn't experienced some, like, a, like at least a little bit of falconry on my own by taking a class. So that was a, an interesting experience for me because it really taught me that, you know, you need to do the research, but you also need to do some real world research or else it won't really come alive. Well, that story that you're talking about is called The Passage Bird. Do you want to just give a brief explanation of, of what that story is about? Sure. It's um, it's about a, a young girl who she's experienced sort of trauma in her family. Her brother has recently died and um, she's not getting a lot of support from her parents or friends or teachers. So she ends up 
befriending a man that she calls the hawk man and he is a neighbor of hers who who keeps birds of prey and who is um is a falconer and um her kind of crush on him they but they end up getting close without ever getting too too close i'm just wondering with falconry why did you use this in your story was it just because you wanted to be, be research something new and just write about it or do you think there's some something both evocative and symbolic in controlling a wild bird of prey yeah exactly that's what I I definitely thought it was in a way symbolic I wanted to to talk about that idea that you can you know have something without actually owning it um which I thought was a kind of nice metaphor for um for first love for um for relationships in in a lot of ways so and also the I mean, the the dynamic between those two characters, he's much older than her. It was an interesting way to explore the way that young women and and somewhat older men can can interact. There's kind of a a controlling aspect, but at the same time, neither person can really be, can be really had by the other person, can really be owned at all. So um, I I just thought it was a sort of apt way of exploring that kind of dynamic. Well, that the concept of sort of ownership and connection comes up with a lot of your stories. Probably my favorite in the story was called Girlfriend on Mars. And yeah, I loved writing that story. This is told from the point of view of a man in a relationship. Do we do we know his name? Oh, yeah, Kev. Mm-hmm. Kevin. Mm-hmm. Um, so Kevin is, uh, is narrating, and his girlfriend, Amber Kivenin, who is um, along with him. They both grow drugs and deal some drugs and have all kinds of different um, careers, uh, ways that they make money. And they met in high school. Well, they met in grade school and they started dating later and they've been together for a really long time. And all of a sudden, unbeknown to him, he she starts competing and trying to get in shape to go on a reality t- TV show to go to Mars and probably never come back. Can you talk about the genesis of this story and what you were trying to explore? Sure, yeah. Um, this, I mean, this story came directly out of the news because there was that Mars One project. I don't think that it's really up and running anymore, but the people behind Mars One wanted to fund um, a colony on Mars. They um they would have a reality show. They would make money from the broadcasting and advertising rights in order to, you know, actually fund this this journey where I think it was like four people at a time would be blasted off to Mars and they could never come home. They would, there would be, they would send more people every couple of years, but the, the people who were already there would never be able to come home. And um, I did read an article about a guy in the UK who applied and he made it quite far. He was like one of 1,500 or something in one of the rounds. Um, and he hadn't told his wife or his or his kids that he'd applied until he made it to like round three or four or something like that. And reading this article, I mean, it was kind of funny at the time. His wife saying like, well, isn't this interesting? He wants to go to Mars <laughs> and just leave us here. Um, 
And so I started to think about about that and how how that would feel to someone. I mean, the characters I came up with were very, very different, but it all came out of research into that project and into into sort of people's ideas about traveling to Mars in general, which, you know, has been around for decades. And it just seemed to me like so ripe for satire. This this I, I was I mean, in a way, it came out of anger, not a personal anger, but anger that people would look around at our planet and see how much we've trashed it and their solution that they would come up with was well we'll just start a colony on mars and that way we can trash another planet and we can maybe even extract more fossil fuels from the moons of mars and and ship them back home it'll be great we can <laughs> burn more fossil fuels so to me it, 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 it came out of just feeling so frustrated with um this this uh so-called problem solving that humans sometimes do. So as the story moves on, Kevin watches these um, segments of her because they take the contestants all over the world to put them in different atmospheres, like the hottest place on earth and things like that. And they sort of team up. And so he's watching her on TV compete to basically leave him and he's a little bit passive about it. I mean, he's, he's bummed, but he doesn't, he doesn't really do anything because he can't and I'm wondering does he have any agency does he have any power in this situation or is he truly powerless um well uh, someone said to me like you could have made this into a novel and I was like well if I'd done that Kevin would have had to leave the house <laughs> you know which wouldn't like, he was he I think he was pretty passive and I mean what that story about was about for me too in terms of the dynamic between the two characters is here's these two people who cannot communicate. She's frustrated with him because he's stoned all the time. He's got no motivation. He's got no ambition. Um, but instead of her actually talking to him about that and trying to, trying to actually improve their relationship, her solution is to run as far away as she can to try to get to Mars. Um, so yeah, I think he is overly passive and I think, in a way, she's overly passive. I think their their lack of communication is a is a sign that they're just they're not brave enough to really to really talk to each other about what matters. So, in your stories, you have a lot of themes of abandonment. You have parents that leave. You have a story about a young boy who, around Halloween, his dad comes back into his life after not being there, stays for a year and leaves. You have this woman going to Mars. You have lovers abandoning each other. So I'm just wondering about this concept of abandonment and if you think it's, you know, as you say, you were exploring these stories about love. Is that, do you think that's a flip side of love? Do you think that's inevitable in a lot of love? What's What, what, what was your interest in this idea? Um, well, my first book is called Vanishing, and it's... um. I mean, it's all about that. It's all about sort of loss and people dealing with with um, different kinds of loss. So in this book, I, I in a way didn't. I wanted it to be a little bit lighter. I think I succeeded a little, although it is called the dark. Um, so I I don't know. I don't think it's inevitable. No, but I think that um, I think when people do when we you know when you hear about those couples who've been together for 60 years like my grandparents were together for 60 years i mean part of that is is cultural and that's a that's a that 
comes from a place in history that maybe doesn't exist at the moment. Um, and then part of it is also just really good luck. Like some people, some people meet the right person. Some people don't. I don't think it, it I don't think it, um, it has to do really with being a good human being. If you find your ideal partner, you know? Yeah. I, th- I mean, and I think we do live in a world where people deal with loss. I mean, we live in a world where there's a lot of divorce and so kids have to deal with that. And then they, they usually deal quite well. So I think it is just sort of part of the culture at the moment. And maybe that's why I wanted to explore it. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Deborah Willis, author of the short story collection, The Dark and Other Love Stories. Your book does inhabit, I feel like you inhabit so many voices from, you know, first person to third person to a Russian writer who goes back to St. Petersburg to explore his past to this stoned out guy watching his girlfriend go to Mars to more World War II era stories. Is that reflective of your interest in research? Is it just that you you are interested in all these themes? I don't really know. I mean, I guess part of it is that I, 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 have, a, I have a lot of ideas and they don't always work out. <laughs> like it took me eight years to write this book, partly because there were a lot of stories that ended up not really coming to life and that I ended up abandoning and so on. Um, I've been working on a novel lately and I've really found it hard to just focus on one big idea. I really do miss being able to, to explore different, different time periods and so on and just kind of go all over the place that I, I guess I got used to that night and, and it's kind of exciting to me. And I just, I, yeah, I love writing short stories because you can explore so many different voices and you can explore so many different dynamics and so on. It's, it's just a lot of fun and you learn so much. Sometimes I feel like my whole job is just to learn more about the world and try to figure out more about, about the way humans act. It's, it's, it's pretty fun. I feel very lucky. So you do have a lot of interest, it seems like, in your stories with World War II, the Holocaust, Israel. Is this reflective of your background? Yeah, yeah. Um, my mom's side of the family is Jewish, so it is. And I think also it's reflective, it's reflective of my background and also, in a way, my lack of background, if that makes sense. Because I, I mean, my mom's family is in Toronto. They're in the, in the east of Canada, and I grew up in the west in Calgary, and then I live in BC. And my contact with my sort of Jewish heritage has been really limited because of that. So um, I think that there's part of that is actually just I write about it because I'm curious about it and because I want to learn more about it, and um, because it it feels in a way like an absence in my life. So I'm sort of trying to fill in the blanks. Has it changed at all for you in your personal life since you started writing about these things? Not really. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. That story that I talked about where the, where the, in the original draft, the two girls go to Israel, it, it was sort of based in a way on an experience I had where I went to Israel and I was like so ready to become like a practicing Jew. <laughs> I was like, this is it. I'm going to Israel and I'm going to come home and I'm going to like be a believer. And, um, that didn't happen. <laughs> I just didn't get it at all. So, um, 
I guess, I don't know if it's really changed the way that I live my life, but, um, it's, yeah, I guess it's just been an attempt and sometimes I do this in my reading too, an attempt to sort of understand that side of my family. I recently read a book set in Toronto in the 1930s, um, about Jewish immigrants. And, and the entire time I was reading the book, I was thinking like, this is like, these are my great grandparents. I, I didn't hear too many stories about them, but I can kind of get some sense of them through this through this book. So that's really interesting to me. I'm wondering what you learned from writing this collection, if you came out a different writer, if you had explored some questions about love or abandonment or connection that by the end you could say, oh, I, I think differently about this. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I also think it, probably I wrote about this theme because the theme came to the really to the forefront of my own life. I, I, I mentioned this in another interview, like I started writing this book sort of in my late 20s. And I still at that time had this sort of idea that I was like, like going to be really independent. And I was it was this really youthful idea, like I'm on my own. I'm going to do my own thing, you know, Um and I sort of came to realize throughout the writing of this book that that nobody is independent, that actually complete independence, the way it's romanticized in our in our society would actually be horrifying. Like what we, we really do need connections to family, to friends, um, to to partners if we have a partner. So I think it sort of it came out of a time in my life when I realized just how important my relationships were. And, and I think in a, in a way, I mean, just not to get super personal, but what really drove that home for me was going through a hard breakup and having my, my heart like actually broken, not just like kind of half broken, <laughs> like just like totally smashed. And I, and I really realized like, like just how vulnerable I was and was finally able to admit that and to embrace it and to accept like people are just so important in your life. And, and when you lose them, you're going to be, if you lose them, you're going to be really devastated. And that is the way it should be. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Deborah Willis, author of the short story collection, The Dark and Other Love Stories. Well, can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you, maybe something that influenced you as a writer? Yeah, sure. Um, we were talking about that story, the passage bird, and about the the falconry, and then you mentioned all the, the how I how I did a lot of research. So I thought I would read something from a book called H's for Hawk by Helen McDonald, um, and I think that this I mean she influenced that story itself. She because I read the book in order to learn more about about um, how to care for for hawks and so on, but. Um, also just I found her the way that she wrote about the birds to be so masterful I mean I, I wouldn't try to imitate it but um, it really influenced me trying to think about writing in general and really trying to to see and describe the sort of concrete natural world does that make sense so um, here we go a few years earlier, I'd worked at a bird of prey center right at the edge of England before it tips into Wales, a land of red earth, 
coal workings, wet forest, and wild goshawks. This one, an adult female, had hit a fence while hunting and knocked herself out. Someone had picked her up unconscious, put her in a cardboard box, and brought her to us. Was anything broken? Was she damaged? We congregated in a darkened room with the box on the table and the boss reached her gloved left hand inside. A short scuffle and then out into the gloom, her gray crest raised and her barred chest feathers puffed up into a meringue of aggression and fear came a huge old female goshawk. Old because her feet were gnarled and dusty, her eyes a deep fiery orange and she was beautiful. Beautiful like a granite cliff or a thundercloud. She completely filled the room. She had a massive back of sun-bleached gray feathers, was as muscled as a pit bull and intimidating as hell, even to staff who spent their days tending eagles. So wild and spooky and reptilian. Carefully, we fanned her great broad wings as she snaked her neck around to stare at us, unblinking. We ran our fingers along the narrow bones of her wings and shoulders to check nothing was broken, along bones light as pipes, hollow, each with cantilevered internal struts of bone like the inside of an aeroplane wing, aeroplane wing. We checked her collarbone, her thick scaled legs and toes and inch long black talons. Her vision seemed fine too. We held a finger in front of each hot eye in turn. Snap, snap, her beak went. Then she turned her head to stare right at me, locked her eyes on mine down her curved black beak, black pupils fixed. Then, right then, it occurred to me that this goshawk was bigger than me and more important, and much, much older, a dinosaur pulled from the forest of Dean. There was a distinct prehistoric scent to her feathers. It caught it in my nose, peppery, rusty as storm rain. Do you want to say anything else? I just felt like she was such a, an amazingly descriptive writer. She just, and, and I think that that came, probably came out of so much experience with that subject matter like she was just completely in there it's nonfiction. she's you know she lived with a hawk she so she lived it she observed it so much um but I, I think she's just a beautiful writer can you read something you wrote maybe it was tricky or hard to change or edit yeah sure I will read the one that I think it took about five years it's called welcome to paradise I'll read I'll read just like one scene from near the beginning. When we were at my house, we would sleep, eat, draw elaborate blueprints for the house we'd one day share or go for walks. Going for a walk was code for going to the strip mall to smoke cigarettes and hit on the Little Caesars pizza delivery guys, Cody and Brody. Their rolled up sleeves and tattooed biceps seemed to embody masculinity and we adored them obsessively. At least Liel did. In preparation for seeing them, we sat on the edge of the bathtub and shaved our legs, then faced the mirror and applied wet and wild eyeshadow and flavored lip glosses. Then we put on shorts and crop tops. Liel always lent me her clothes, and we strolled down the back alley behind Little Caesars like we hung out beside dumpsters all the time. We must have done this a dozen times, but the day I remember most was the one that led to our crimes. Cody and Brody were in the parking lot. Smoking and sitting on flimsy chairs, they propped against a wall scrawled with graffiti. A girl named Kat had tagged her name everywhere, and her scribbles were faded, almost illegible, a ghost of a presence. Kat was here. Hey, said Liel. She did most of the talking, her accent making her seem older. What's up, guys? I'll show you what's up. 
Cody wore a baseball cap, and the brim shadowed the top part of his face. It was impossible not to watch his mouth when he talked. Come over here and sit on my lap, he said. Brody just nodded and laughed at whatever Cody said. He didn't wear a cap, and he had a face like a movie star, all cheekbones, and a braid that hung down his back. They made pizza deliveries in their own beat-up vehicles. Cody drove a, sun, uh, drove a Pontiac Sunbird and Brody a pickup. We longed for one of them to offer us a ride somewhere, anywhere, as this would have given us an adventure to, to dissect for weeks. But Cody and Brody mostly ignored us. They talked to each other in a mysterious shorthand or wrestled in the blinding sun, gripping each other by the waist and neck, tugging at each other's shirts. I can take you, I can take you, Cody said. He was 18, younger than his friends, and he gave Brody a kick on the shin and called him a dirty Indian. What'd you say, white boy? Brody put Cody in a headlock and they tumbled to the pavement, scraping their knees, grappling and grunting, scratching each other until they bled. Oh my God, Liel would giggle. Don't hurt each other. We believed they were showing off for us, proving their strength. We were pretty sure Cody liked Liel and Brody liked me. When they finished fighting, Liel asked Cody if we could bum cigarettes off him, and he tossed his pack over to us. Brody rolled his own and never shared, but once he used a Zippo to light my cigarette. He leaned towards me, the flame cradled in his big, calloused hands. Thanks, I said. No problem, he said. So what's your name? Hannah. Hannah Banana, Cody interrupted, smiling in that mocking way. I like your yellow hair. The first puffs always made me dizzy, but so did the way Cody and Brody appraised me, smoke curling from their mouths. It occurred to me that maybe I was the pretty one, the one they might want. How old are you, Hannah Banana? asked Cody. Can we go? said Liel. Why? he said. Where do you have to be? Then she turned and walked away, her cigarette dropping ash on the ground. I stayed where I was leaning against the wall, and contemplated for an entire second the possibility that I might not follow her. Then I ran to catch up. I'll stop there. So tell me why you chose this. I think because I worked on that beginning for so long. And when I, I think about it now, I mean, it's, it, it doesn't make sense to me why some stories come so quickly and some are so laborious. I don't really understand it. But this one, like I said, it just, it seemed to take forever. And, um, and the beginning in particular seemed to take, it, it was really hard for me to, to know when to drop into the story, like when to start the narrative. Um, and I think I had a sort of insight at one point, like just start with them at their most like adolescent, full of like wanting, you know, just wanting something to happen to them. Um, and so that's when I finally found my beginning. Where do you write? Um, I write in my office. We just moved to, well, not just, but a couple months ago, moved to a slightly bigger place so that I could have an office and my partner could have a music room. So now I have this little yellow office. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Um, I do yoga. I, uh, I'm also like, I really like to salsa dance. <laughs> and like, that's like the opposite of writing. I love, it's like loud and sociable and just pure fun. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, I have a few friends who, who like very generously read my work. Um, so usually them. And um, how have you dealt with rejection? 
I was just thinking about this because um, someone asked me what the best advice I'd ever gotten was. And I realized that the best writing advice I ever got was from a writing teacher named Patrick Lane, a poet. Um, and when I was like 17, he, I was in his class and he said that he had a group of students once who had a competition to see who could get the most rejection letters. And by the end of the year, they all brought in their letters, they counted them up, and it turned out that the person who won the competition who had the most rejections also had the most acceptances. So it kind of, that story has been in my mind for like 15 years, and it really has changed the way I think about rejection. I just think of it as part of the process and not as failure. Like it's just a normal part of putting your work out there. And what is your favorite word? Oh, this is such a hard question. Um, I was thinking about like how eon is a cool word because it has lots of vowels in it. I was like, what, what other words was I liking? I was liking the word teacup last night when I was thinking about this. And then I also thought, like, I like the word f***. Like, it's so useful. <laughs> you can use it so many different ways. Sometimes you really need to swear because things go wrong. So I'd say, like, like teacup and f*** and eon. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Deborah Willis, author of the short story collection, The Dark and Other Love Stories. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.